welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Legendary travel presenter and Monty Python alumni Michael Palin has said, It remains for me the quintessential travel publisher. It has one of the very best lists, according to historian William Dalrymple. The writer Fergus Fleming says, No British publisher has a list so enticingly eclectic or so consistently rewarding. I'm speaking, of course, about the legendary Eland books. Eland has been resurrecting lost travel classics and keeping them in print for more than 35 years. Joining me today from London is Barnaby Rogerson, publisher of Eland and a prolific writer on the Muslim world. I think it's the perfect place to kick off my very first podcast and any discussion on books about place. We talk about anthropology light, why the post-war period was a golden age for British travel writing, and why some of the 20th century's most exciting writers were autodidacts. You'll want to have a pencil and notebook handy for this one. There are so many books that you'll want to read. Bonavir Rogerson, welcome to Personal Landscapes. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I think, as I'm a, I'm an enormous fan of your work, as you know, and uh, I think Eland is the obvious place to um, to start my new podcast about uh, uh, about books about place. Uh, I think many of my listeners will already know Eland or be familiar with Eland books, but for for those who don't, could you uh, could you please tell us the story of Eland and and how you came to the helm of this of this venerable institution? Absolutely. Eland is a publishing company with quite a, uh, a well-placed niche in reprinting classic travel literature. And we've got good coverage in, in the trade in Britain. People know us. We're almost cited as an example of how to do independent publishing, just concentrate on your niche. But yet, at the same time, we're an oddball operation. Uh, we don't feel part of the mainstream in any way. We're very anti-corporate. And there's a sort of enduring sort of amateur, bohemian edge to it all right from the start. So this is not just me sounding off. Um, Elan got started because there was a, uh, a character called John Hatt who was working as a journalist in Southeast Asia. And he discovered this amazing book called A Dragon Apparent by Norman Lewis which predicted the fall of the French regime in Southeast Asia and in a way predicted the final disaster of American involvement in that region. And he was so taken by this book. And he said, everybody needs to read it. Everybody, every general, everybody should have a copy of this. So he went around all the London publishing companies saying, you've just got to reprint it. It's absolutely a vital part of you know, contemporary sort of life. And they all rejected it. And so he said, bugger that, I'm going to set up on my own. And it was his desire to sort of sidestep the sort of corporate control that Elam was born with a very single book, A Dragon Apparent by Norman Lewis. And John Hatt, in order to sort of give it body, started adding others and did four books that first March um, uh, 1982 and then rolled it on, but always um, keeping away from setting up an office, getting investors, running it from the top of his house hmm. and very sort of hands-on attitude. And quite early on, I was um, I wrote him a fan letter. I'm afraid in in purple ink, as a rather still am, a pretentious affected character. And um, 
I'd read all the books he'd reprinted about Morocco, which I knew as a, as a young man. And I wrote as a student, um, sort of, sort of, I suppose, feeling my way towards a job. And he wrote back very kindly saying, I'm never going to employ anybody who writes to me in purple. <laughs> uh, but I'm intrigued by your interest. Um, and so come and have a cup of tea on the understanding that it's, this is not a job interview. So we had a um, really good chat and we stayed in contact. And later on, I quite soon became a writer of guidebooks to North Africa, uh, Turkey and Middle East, and would recommend books to him. And he behaved just as badly as the, as the corporate culture in rejecting um, our advice. But we sort of got to know him very well, um, um, sort of working beside him. And how, how did you end up taking it over? Oh, um, I, I, some of these books uh, that he'd refused, a bit like him, I said, well, bugger that. I'm going to reprint them myself. And so very much in the image of him did four books um, in our first year and wrote a letter, um, I think wisely avoiding Purple Ink this time, <laughs> and um, said, you could be annoyed because we are setting up very much in the slipstream of what you've done in Eland, but you can't be because I've tried to sell you these books. And so we're just going to go ahead. And he wrote back again, a very good correspondent by return of post saying, you didn't need to have sent that letter. I think it's going to be to your advantage because um, I'm looking for someone to take over Eland. He just made an enormous amount of money setting up cheapflights.com, which did make him a fortune, but nearly destroyed him, you know, nearly gave him a stroke and a heart attack. And uh, so he was bailing out. And at that stage of his life, he wanted to, bail out of everything and take some time off and listen to birdsong at dawn and that sort of thing. I mean, I think he, if he held his hand, he'd have had all the money to run Eland and because um, uh, he uh, cheapflights.com sold very, very well. But so we took over with very little knowledge of, of anything apart from enthusiasm about these books that really in a very chatty, loose, easy way explained place to you, not guidebooks, much more fluent um, narrative written sort of books by chance, as it were. Well, yeah, in many ways, I see Eland as kind of a successor of those those classic lists, like Century Traveler or um, Virago Travelers. Uh, we, yeah, just without sounding a bit nerdy, um, Eland started first, ah. and it was John John's success, and particularly in review coverage, he got some really good early coverage. We've kept scrapbooks with them, the physical articles pasted in. And literally, some wise, clever publishers thought this man is just ahead of the wave and threw the bigger weight of corporate publishing behind. So Century happened after um, John, and they employed someone to, to quickly look at 100 and just sort of scoop them up, which John was sort of not cross about, but just, you know, if, if you are a small business you, and you've got a good idea, you really need to go with it hammer and tongs. And to a certain extent, he felt a little bit sculpted as Virago's slightly different story because they were doing um, female writers and letters and then then added a travel dimension to it. And then I've been trying to research um, the history of the Penguin travel, uh, travel list, the, the early purple ones your readers will know all about in the 20s, which um, by and large aren't very good. Only two or three of them have survived of the 60. But the, the Penguin modern travel library with that, recognizable sort of pale green spine was set up 
set up afterwards. And again, <laughs> very ad hoc, I managed to talk to two or three people who were working at Penguin. And he just said, we just rummaged around and saw which ones we were going to, ha we had in print already, and we just repackaged them. And again, not a grand strategy. And I said, was there, you know, was there a travel editorial meeting? Was there a sort of think tank of, of you know, um, informed writers? He said, no. <laughs> it was just, she was the secretary who then, you know, worked her way up. And um, she said, no, it was just a very informal um, sort of uh, rearrangement. And of course, it's, it, it sort of died out. Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing. They're, they're not around anymore and you are clearly thriving. And I, I was always curious about how those, how those started. I didn't, I didn't realize there was so little coordination behind the scenes, like it, that it was this, uh, that, that it was this improvised. And what's encouraging is I've met some of the characters who were the sort of, whether it's this overworked secretary in Penguin or whether it was a freelance writer who's employed by Set, Century to list his favorite hundred books. It's again, down to a tiny few individuals with taste and discretion perhaps discretion is pompous, but um, who knew enough. And I rather love that. that, you know, although it's these big corporate machines, in the end, they're employing someone um, who's quite quirky to, to make up their mind for them. And when we were setting up uh, Sickle Moon, we did, you know, we talked to publishers rather foolishly because you've got to, you know, you've got to be a bit like a poker player, we now realise in retrospect. And we set off various other people, including John Murray, who suddenly thought, God, perhaps we should be setting up our own travel list. And he employed Sarah Anderson, who ran the iconic travel bookshop in uh, Notting Hill, who's a great friend of ours. And um, she, you know, we paid a couple of hundred quid to produce a, a dozen um, classics from the John Murray backlist, which he did and set it up. And then that went down the spout because he sold the whole business. But it's, I love all these sort of interlaying of these few rare characters um, who, who read, who are behind all of these different lists. Do, do you think that's a, a reflection of, of Eland readers as well? I mean, they, they seem to have that sort of um, quirky appreci appreciation for some of these strange books and a radar for kind of finding this stuff. Oh, very much. We've, um, my, my, my wife, business partner, um, speaks Russian and wrote Russian um, travel guides. And we did books to Istanbul, and I know the Middle East and North Africa reasonably well as a tourist. Um, so that was our area. And we soon sort of gutted the ones that were very fluent from those regions. And we've turned ourselves without any organization into a cooperative of passionate readers. We get lots of emails, sometimes two or three a day, from customers and clients talking about books they've liked. And sometimes someone you know, said, I've, I've read Peking Story, I've read Hermit of Peking. Why haven't you done dot, 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 dot? And then we pay attention because they've already read into what we're up to. And literally, I think probably about half our titles now have been selected or I've been urged to, to read a book by um, a reader, client, customer, you know, whatever it is, fellow traveler. Um, so what, what were your best, what were some of your best finds that, that came from readers? Well, um, to give you the most extreme example i knew this um curious character sort of um on one level sort of ascetic marquis in northern ireland um who had an early art gallery um in london but he was a really good reader and he discovered this book that he's absolutely passionate about which had a very floppy um sort of mass market cover called the ginger tree by oswald wine and he um talked to john hatt 
And he said, you must read this. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he plugged on him. Every time he met him, he said, have you read it? Have you read it? And eventually got it to the head of um, John's reading. And he fell totally in love with it. And it is one of those crossover books because it's one of the few books that have helped um, Elan make some money because it sold over 700,000 copies um, after it was turned into a, um, I think a television adaption. And it's that sort of insistence by our community of readers about things that sort of cross over. They're not actually sort of dead, classic, straightforward, revered sort of pantheon that give Eland its sort of, its sort of edge. Um, that's um, a recent example, turning my back of the things that we've published um, in the last two years would be um, we haven't got the contract for something so I can't talk about. Well, Moritz Thompson was was quite a recent one, wasn't it? Yes, that was um, Sarah Wheeler, um, a travel writer, championed um, Moritz Thompson's work. There was already Living Poor in the list. Uh, she said the saddest pleasure. Oh, that's a, that's a fantastic the, book, yeah. The greatest contemporary uh, travel books. And it was a, a, a passionate, I think, long, not so much review, but sort of, literary piece uh, in, in, um, by Sarah that got me reading that. And then you, uh, three pages later, you said, this is absolutely made us. But that was, um, that was sort of uh, Sarah's role. Forgotten Kingdom, Peter Goulart, that was the one I was trying to remember recently. That was, that was a, a reader, you know, as I mentioned, saying you've got some really good sinophile books on a list, but how come you missed that one? And again, I'd, I'd never read it, but... Um, rummaging around found that I'd actually owned two copies and you know bring them to the surface and again you you switch immediately in sometimes I talk to my friends and my colleague my wife and say you know I love a second opinion and she always says if you need a second opinion don't publish it it's got to be that absolute conviction that you know yeah that's something you said to me when when uh, we met a couple of years ago in London that's um a second opinion means you want to protect yourself from something. I, I wrote that in my notebook. I, I look at that quite often. That's a very good advice. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> that's very clever. Yes, I think you know there's some doubt, and you want someone else's opinion to. Yeah, um, you're looking for a scapegoat to blame. You are, or, or defend you. Um, we have we we've got two very you know politically minded daughters, and during lockdown we've had lots of discussions about whether the whole Elan list should be put on the scrap heap or the recycling list as sort of, you know, borrowing, orientalizing, sort of fictionalizing foreign cultures. Yeah, well, this is, yeah, that's interesting. This is something I wanted to ask you about. Like, what do you, what do you think about this, this um, current craze for finding something problematic about everything, like judging, judging people from the past by the standards of today? I mean, it amuses me because I think it's led by people who haven't read sufficiently to understand how rare good books are. And we comb through um, periods. And when you've, I mean, half centuries can go by and there's no book that you particularly want to preserve from that time. But the, the, the acts of fluency and those, those people who can vividly describe and know a culture are so rare, you can't possibly you know, um, pass them up. And I think it's very good to be reminded that we have possibly, and the next generation have enormously, you know, improved um, the moral ground, but we need to know where we've come from. Um, 
For instance, I'm looking at a, a fantastic book that I remember hating as a young man, which is Peter Fleming's um, um, a Brazilian. Uh, uh, and um, there is the N-word in there. And I talked to my very, very sort of write-on daughters about that. And they said, give us the context. And then I read the description. They said, "Yeah, well, that's 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 someone having a relationship with someone, and you know, using a, ro- a word we now consider inappropriate." But I would be unable to edit a text. I would hate. You know, I think you either have to make decision that you're going to publish. Um, I would not be in favour of of ever sort of boulderizing or fitting into our current needs a text. You either make that sort of commercial decision to publish or not to publish. Um, we're very much against change, even to the extent that we've just working on an edition of Mary Workley Montague's uh, Turkish Embassy Letters. And over the years, people have been adding letters that might have made it into the original edition, but didn't. And we're very keen to to stay true to that sort of the, the, the commercial instant when, when a book had its readership and had its had its voice. Yeah, I think that's important. It's a, it's a snapshot of a moment in time and it's... It's it's important to understand that people to to recognize that people thought differently than we did in the past, and and you you can read through something and pick out what's valuable while also looking looking at something they've said and say, Jesus, I can't believe people believed that back then or thought this back then. Isn't it interesting how things have changed? And it's also wise to remember, you know, that the people in the future will judge us as well in the same way. It's quite smug to to think otherwise that some of our beliefs won't be won't be judged just as harshly. And I hope. I hope they're as charitable towards us as you know a careful reader would be towards read- writers of the past. Absolutely, and and that's where we slightly differ from um, the people. When I'm, we've always tried to find a sort of partner um, in America, and there isn't the same role of, of small independent publishers. There's a bigger, more difficult, more more taxing commercial environment. But there are, there are these amazing things called university presses. And we've tried to talk to them, and 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 they are, you know, the, the equivalent, of, I think, of the sort of indie publishing scene in in London and Norwich and and um, you know Edinburgh that exists in Britain. But they they are committee bound with a form of earnestness, and I think it's good for us trying to sell our books and, and stay commercial, rather than be leaning back on the resources of university press. And so full of the sort of anxiety. This is the problem. Yeah, if it, if it causes you to compromise, it requires that sort of compromise. So it's certainly not worth it. I mean, even yeah. just just the the way people looked at at others in the past, it's it's true of every culture. I mean, I, I don't mean that. Uh, not to say that something like racism is is a deeply human trait, but the casting the unknown as as uh, an other certainly is. Like how many how many people's uh, name for themselves is the people. So the Inuit means uh, the people, for example. So yeah, implying that everybody else is a barbarian who's not the people. I think everybody had, every culture seems to have something that built in inwardness and travel is the cure for this. Contact with other people is the cure for this. So yeah, it's uh, judging judging the past by cultural standards today is just, uh, it's, it's to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think you we lose a lot by doing so. It is indeed, but what is refreshing, uh, returning to this, um, another book that we're just editing at the moment, so you know, it's in my mind a lot, is Letters from Egypt by Lucy Duff Gordon, which is 
um, written at the turn of the 19th century. And that's fascinating to have someone who clearly is not a racist, but the whole world is, for the first time, becoming racist. As you've said, we're all used to every culture, others, whether it's Glasgow hating Edinburgh or, you know, Paris, Bordeaux never getting on. There's always otherness, you know, if it's a New Guinea tribe raging war and it's um, rivals or you know, Campbell's and the McDonald's, you know, fighting in Scotland. We're all used to that sort of antagonism of our neighbour, but the clearly racism, as we know it, didn't exist much before 1850. And although we revere Charles Darwin and all, I mean, it's very, you get a very quick, um, extraordinary scientific mood coming. But we have these heroes who, even in this tidal wave of sort of, you know, what appeared to be a science, um, stand their humanist ground and make you absolutely, you know, in my case, worship the ground of Lucy Duff Gordon. And to realize things, you know, um, Lucy is a representative of three generations of very well-educated feminist women making their own living or certainly um, assisting their husbands in surviving by writing. And you've got um, um, three generations of women who all wrote half a dozen books in their life um, over the range of the 19th century. And again, that's rather wonderful to discover um, the richness of, of um, you know, these different traditions. And we don't fit very neatly into patterns of, you know, when when women felt liberated, there were these exceptional individuals who who got it earlier. Speaking of that, I was I was listening to a podcast recently. I don't don't remember what it was, but um, the interviewee was a, a professor who had written a, a book about uh, pilgrimage and travel as pilgrimage. And the host and her both agreed that travel writing is gendered one of the one of the current buzzwords. And the, the example they gave was 19th century travel writing. So uh, people like Mary Kingsley and Isabella Bird, they said that uh, because traveling was a masculine thing or seen as something, a male activity, these women were somehow exceptional. They think they were women doing, being good at male things. And that's how they were regarded, not as writers, but as women doing male things. Um, do, do, you, do you think that's the case? Was, was travel writing gendered and is writing about place still gendered today? I think um, so much goes on and interweaves at the same time. I mean, what is interesting is is the buying public, and if and if they want a sort of heroic male thing, that that'll sell in, in in its thousands. But these particular examples of Lucy Duff Gordon, mid nineteenth century, eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, Mary worked in Montague, um, early early eighteenth um, century, are you know absolutely at the top of the tree still in terms of writing humanity, engagement in culture, and in both cases, really good linguistic skills, which gives live conversations with the Ottoman court and Turkish people, not just in Istanbul, with all the Levantine sort of ease going on, but in Adirne and other cities in, in Mary's case. And you have to say, well, this is, this is you know, <laughs> right from the start of travel writing. Women were incredibly good at it. And what you notice in particular with both of them is they're much better at, at, um, at unburdening individuals, at recording conversations. And so you, you, by my standards, you have much better travel writing. And the men are, as men will do, more fixated by power, archaeology, great architecture, and sort of doing a sort of history summary of it. And those are still sort of vaguely upheld by the sort of gender issues. Um, Dervla Murphy, you know, one of our great travel writers, 
from my own conversation, I know she knows everything about architecture and archaeology and the history and incredibly deep reading in anthropology, but she doesn't bother bringing that in. And I think a male writer would possibly like possibly like to show off or just sort of, perhaps not show off, just bring in that sort of horizon sort of cleverness of, of, of Renaissance man. Well, a woman will be more content to really get the sound box of a conversation and a dialogue with uh, an individual. It does seem like men are more interested in things as, as yeah. a rule anyway, like that it, which draws people to things like engineering or mathematics, the professions that no sane person would would enjoy doing but the, but the things that they um that they cited as particularly masculine about these about these women travelers didn't strike me as as so at all like i mean what what they did was unusual but but all of this stuff was unusual it's not quite a normal thing to want to you know rock across the sahara for example or or go live in a hut with some tribe i mean they were unusual people in general so some someone like um uh, Beryl Markham comes to mind. West, her, her wonderful book West with the Night. She she wasn't masculine. She was a she was a pilot. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, um, Isabella Bird is a very interesting character because she would found traditional British society so destructive that she would go into illness and you know famously fit and sort of capable of riding horses across the world and exploring jungles when she was abroad and would go into some form of decline once back in Edinburgh um, with the freedom of a, a cottage in Mull to give her sort of breath. And so there is a, you know, there is a need to look at what society was doing to her. But I think that's probably much more common with all British travel writers is the need to escape uh, this very controlled sort of Venn diagrammed placing uh, society in Britain um, and finding the freedom to go abroad is across, certainly crosses genders at all generations. And we, you know, we really do like to include the 16th century, you know, we, we've got 500 years of, of, of travelers and they are much more united um, as individuals in, in this theme uh, than divided by either gender or, class or age or education i think so yeah that's that's something that's many of these writers seem to have in common like they're they were um subversive or resistant to authority which which led them to lead unconventional lives like you're like you're saying or to search for lives outside their own society you know there's people that just didn't fit in at home like a like a richard francis burton or sybil bedford as well comes to mind so do you think do you think that's an essential characteristic of somebody who writes about place sort of that being driven from one's own society or that's that urge to rebel against it? It's, it's more complex because they then settle down. And as you know, writing is going to take you six months sitting in a dark corner and sometimes five years and sometimes 10 years in order to get the respect of the society that they fled from. And so although writers, you know, time and time again, Gavin Maxwell, you know, tortured character, but he did in the end want the respect of his own people, but on his own terms. And so they had to travel with him. Um, Wilfred Thessinger, another perfect example of someone who's so harrowed by the appalling nature of his prep school, um, that's as of seven to 13 period of British life, that really that was one of the sort of driving forces of all his life is escaping those memories of Britain and proving himself as tough as tough all over the world, but in the end, writing the books, getting them published by mainstream, uh, you know, Gavin Maxwell, Longmans, um, 
he drew, even though Gavin drove everybody mad because he was a very, very difficult character and um, would turn up to his publisher once a week to collect the royalties and, you know, would, you know, was a maverick. But, um, you know, <laughs> he, in the end, he wanted the respect of, of home as well. It's interesting. It's a symbiotic relationship because you really can't have one without the other. Like, no matter how much you rebel against it and seek to to have your own life, you still have to publish that work somewhere. You still have to bring it back and, and kind of sell it to uh, to the society that you fled from. That's very interesting. And as you know, you have to work really hard and you have to, you know, throw away the first three books. And it's it's not, you know, um, we are, again, in the sort of heyday of COVID, we've been offered books, one or two a day. People are doing things. Think at the end of their life, they might just sort of, write down a memoir you know these are ex- extreme gifts uh, gifts of, of craftsmanship creating a, a page if you want to turn and as we all know one of the most you know tedious of all entertainments is listing someone's traveling tales or worse of all their slides in the old days or their photograph albums you know um hearing travelers is, is not high up on, on what we want to do with our sort of free time so transmuting that sort of negative energy um, into something that delights us is is an extremely rare gift. Mm. Was it was it Paul Theroux that said um, when somebody comes to you and says, uh, "Oh, tell me, have you been to, to Morocco? Tell me about your trip to Morocco." Really means let me tell you about my trip to Morocco. Like you know, you know, you, <laughs> you know, you're in for a, an hour of boredom. Yeah, and then I wrote um, in the early part of my life a guidebook to Morocco and. And lots of those people said, oh, would you come to supper? You know, they had a map. And, you know, by and large, they, they had uh, their own ideas very clearly. And you could never get them off. You know, they'd invited you as a sort of so-called expert to sort of plot their holiday for them, which you know, I was happy to do, get well-fed, well-dined. Um, but it was very intriguing in the nature of the marketplace, which I'm always fascinated by. Is that you could you could tell people anything they you know everything about Morocco, but in the end they've already got without having been there two or three things that they really need to investigate, and you know um, the power of you know the image of the foreign legion to witness the Sahara Desert would be one of those sort of you can call it a trope. They really had to investigate that. They um, they really wanted to see. Um, the Roman frontier, and they wanted to sort of tease around whether this was, you know, part of our heritage, and um, whether the, you know, Arabs had destroyed this great sort of um, corporate culture. All of these things, whatever you you told them, they'd become giggling back. And to make money, um, being a publisher and being a writer, not very well um, paid. Such a lovely life; it would be very unfair if it was. But so I would do. I, I have done lots of tour guiding and lecturing and um, easily match my, my income as a, as a publisher in the Hadia by taking trips to Morocco and Tunisia and the Sahara, Syria and uh, Istanbul. And it was fascinating knowing that you really had to tell them the stories they prepared to listen to, um, which were sort of prearranged, which makes it very interesting about the role of being a contemporary publisher of, of travel, about what, what the market wants to hear. I mean, it's it's obvious that people have 
they, they don't like having their, their preconceptions shaken up. Like they don't, they don't like to have to change their mind about things, but to go into travel with, with your mind already made up, it's, it's uh, defeats the purpose entirely. Like, what are you going to learn from that? You just reinforce what you already think about a place. It's, it's very curious. And, and a skill writer takes people happily, amuses them, charms them, you know, is good company, delivers something of what the, the reader wants or feels that they need to understand, and then takes them off onto the horizon um, that without any pompous sort of educates them about sort of realities. And I think that is something vital about being the travel writer being good company. You, you, you are, you become very fond of page turning and where they're going to go now and begin to sort of begin to accept things from someone that you like. You definitely want to, you want to travel whether literally or, or physically with somebody who's who you'd like to travel with, you know, not, not somebody who's a, who's a miserable person who you can't stand to be around. That's for sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And many, yeah, many of the, many of the books on your list, uh, the writers capture that as well. There are a lot of people you think oh, it would be the kind of person you'd like to have a beer with in a, in a random bar in some strange place. And, and that's been one of the um, rewards is having beers with Dervla Murphy and, you know, it's like, it's like winning the, you know, the pool is uh, spending a couple of days with her. She has this enormous breakfast and um, has listened to um, the World Service broadcast and the conversation starts right in the morning and carry on. Engaged, relevant, um, never showing off, always inquiring. And it's fantastic to meet someone who's possibly even better than she is on the page. Because often dealing with writers can be disappointing. The, the best of them has been condensed you know for your charm and education on the page and sometimes they're not actually that sort of sort of interesting in the flesh but Dervla more than delivers this sort of really impressive engaged and also a real democrat everybody gets listened to everybody gets to none of that sort of silent sort of a grading of you know I'm a successful writer and you know it's it's me to tell you she's a she's a she's a proper citizen that must have been quite uh, quite a momentous day to get to get um, her backlist on on onto the Eland list. Was that something that that was already with Eland from the beginning? Was it something that that you arranged during during your tenure? It, it happened during our tenure, but it happened like all good things by Marv's confusion of chance incidents. Is that she had this fantastically close relationship with John Murray. Was um, who would do the first read, and the actual copy editing would be done by Diana, by his wife. So she really trusted their joint judgment, absolutely. And she had that marvelous chance incident of literally bumping into um, John Betjeman's um, wife in Delhi on a bicycle, read her first draft, and said, Trust me, I'm going to send this to my publisher, John Murray. So Dervil never had to fuss around with agents and rejections. She'd got a passionate, already published writer physically taking um, the first copy of Full Tilt to the offices in Albemarle Street and, and John Murray saying, yeah, you know, and so it was just a very, very, very close, intimate connection. And she became a great friend of all the Murray family, would stay with them, sleep on their sofa. So she was not going to be taken um, away from 
that relationship at all until the sad thing of when Murray got sold down the river to the um, great corporate culture, which was owned by incredibly ugly people who make bombs, Lajadere, you know, made a fortune for the Falklands War, selling rockets to both sides, that sort of thing. Um, and she said, no, I just, I can't be part of this big corporate culture. And she was very reluctant looking around. And fortunately, the publicist that we employed had worked um, with John Murray and said, well, why don't you meet um, Rosen Barnaby? So we uh, knew that she didn't really like um, restaurants, hated sort of stylish, sort of first class life. So we cooked a really big Irish breakfast in our home. And it wasn't going very well. Dervla came in and said, no, no, I've eaten hours ago. And, you know, so all the bacon and mushrooms that I prepared were looking like it was going to waste. But then suddenly through our kitchen door, the door opened and in ran two daughters um, trying to herd our small collection of rabbits that lived in our, in our back garden in London. And that just broke the ice. I mean, Dervla became suddenly being very sort of hostile and suspicious of us, just decided this was the sort of people she wanted to be published by. So it was this escaping dwarfy, who was a tiny little rabbit, but incredibly energetic, who'd filled our tiny back garden in London with, with tunnels, was the medium um, that brought Dervla Murphy uh, Elam books. And we, um, so, you know, we got it by chance. And I, I still can't believe that, you know, Full Tilt had gone out of print or, you know, that we got the rights not only to you know, not only to publish fresh three um, books, original you know original titles by Derbla, but picked up a whole of her backlist. Was, was that um, out of print at the time? Sorry? Was it out of print at the time? Full tilt in these other books. So bizarre, and um, and then you know I I found that in theory it was in print in America, but it it wasn't in print. Um, so we reverted the rights there, and you know we've got and it. It really gave us some additional commercial backbone and, you know, was significant in strengthening um, the Elam brand and and giving it a, uh, this sort of very marvellous independent voice as well. That's such a good book. I, I just reread it recently. I'd, I'd forgotten how how uh, enjoyable that book is. It's prompted me to dig right back into uh, all of our earliest works all over again. But one thing I really liked about Full Tilt is it's... it's uh, it's not an ordeal book, like the, you know the idea of going from uh, Dublin yeah. to India by bicycle. The, so many people would would just write that as this ordeal, this this horrible slog. You know, look what I did. But the bicycle is sort of a means to an end. Just it's just the way of getting there, and it opens up all these conversations along the way. She hasn't got an ounce of self pity, and as you said, it's just all energy and enjoyment. And this is. The winter that other people would make into into an expedition crossing the snow race of '63, um, and it, you just have this Irish woman just bounding out of her life and um, getting excited by the world. I mean, the backstory is quite interesting: is that she had ended up nursing her bedridden mother, so literally she was a sort of Titan Spring, who'd had her her sort of youth of twenties very largely constrained by looking after lovingly attentively and she adored her mother so when she did finally escape after her mother's death um she she just could not be bored by anything and that sort of that ex exuberance in that book is 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 fantastic they do really comes across in all of her work so so what what's um i guess it brings me to a larger question that we've we've touched on quite a lot already but what do, what do you think um 
makes great writing about place. What what does it take? We've we've talked a lot about what what isn't in there as well. I mean, ultimately, it's the ability to edit down, you know, five years of experience into a couple of minutes mm -hmm. of good conversation. And I've got a sort of standby rule that I never want to publish anything that I can do. I mean, I'm incredibly well-traveled in the Middle East and Sahara, and I, I, I want the books to be so much better than anything I could have done. And by that, I mean, I want a real intimate access into another culture, another community. I don't want my own sort of facile monument spotting and sort of sort of arrange meetings with a local archaeologist and a historian. That book is not good enough for me. I want those. Um, there's a new term for it in anthropology. It's sort of chance encounters of, of just being able to talk to people. And some have talked to enough people and have some experiences that make it um, like a sort of true insight. I'm, I'm always amazed how rare it is that anybody really gets a sort of friendship going on, on any travel. You have sort of encounters with taxi drivers and, and, and the, you know, um, restaurateurs and, um, and the odd madman. What's really precious is, is that sort of friendship. And that's what, and that's a challenge, I think, for contemporary travel writers is not trade these friendships. You, you don't want someone going in there and, and sort of using people and stealing their stories. You want the, the sort of the proper sharing. I mean, it also takes a lot of time, I think, and that's something that, that people don't seem as willing to put in anymore. Things, things have speeded up so much. They've speeded up, and Dervil is very strong. Um, and she is the sort of current saint of, of Elam thinking, and she is very against the culture of agents and advances you know which seems to be such a good idea that an impoverished writer gets you know in the old days perhaps twenty thousand pounds to go off and spend three years writing but in fact it puts a time limit on it a delivery deadline that's in the contract and you go off and you you manufacture your adventures you actually don't have um, enough time to sort of boil it down and john hat who set up eland said you know he's never interested in those sort of books that have got their mission their time scale you know, it's already got their sort of narrative plotted out on the, on a sort of billboard at home. He wants books that had to be written. You had an experience that really needs sharing. Either it was so shocking that you really need to sort of unburden yourself, or just so interesting and so uh, so life enhancing. You've got to share it, and that's what we we look around and the whole schedule of selling your project to a publisher, getting an advance, getting a word count. You know, plotting it is against the creation of, of the books that we think are worthwhile. And I have served on some prize-giving committees, and there are there's some great writers out there, but you still feel again and again and again that people are are cutting their, their cloth too tightly in terms of experience. And, um, and the books are good, but they're just not going to last. That example of having a, that sort of experience that you just have to share, is that something that comes along only once? Like, how, how does... How does a writer even follow that up? You know, where the, with this pivotal thing that happens to you that you really need to capture, and that's sometimes that's that's your story, and that's that's the best of what you've got. Well, you know, the, the sadness is. I mean, John Hat would again say again and again is that most good writers have this one book, and if they're lucky, they they've shaved it off in, into sort of twelve um, different facets, and perhaps had more than one book. 
but time and time again there is when we all you can think of even novelists you know going through one consistent sort of story that has to be excavated um norman Lewis was very fortunate in being able to create i think six you know extraordinary sort of disparate classics um from around the world but that was you know very very rare to uh, to have that the other thing i find too with these this this sort of current trend on time pressure and um uh, and advances it's it seems to um well it seems to spark trends trends or phases like you you there'll be the ordeal book phase and the the travel to fix up a house phase or the travel to fix myself you know that travel as a, a subspecies of memoir uh, that's something you don't see in Elan's list. It's it's got a timelessness about it that's that's uh, really enjoyable. Well, you know, on one level, we are vultures just sort of picking over the bones of you know, there's the real publishers of people grabbing and working on people's ideas and typescripts. We've got the much happier job of picking over and just selecting sort of one book from that sort of crop of of five hundred, and um, the one that works and that comes out and i i'm really happy that all these things coexist that there are fresh um exuberant you know motorcycle diary books that, that come out that that have got their great strength and sort of you know tele friendly um young men doing adventures in in jungles with their shirts off you know all power and all credit to them for giving themselves a life and and um and without exception telling me things I, I didn't know before but you as you taste it you realize this is just this is just not going to last you know you're, you're you're sort of selling your your tell yourself which is not going to um, work for the next generation or even half generation yeah it lacks that timelessness i think that yeah. and that's well i mean to ask a rhetorical question then why um why why should someone planning a trip read something old rather than something new well, I mean, I often wonder if our readers are coming back and they themselves have got really interested in a society. And so I often wonder if an Eland is good preparation for someone's travel, because I'm not alone in wanting to sort of experience it myself and not be sort of edited down by either a guide or a bus tour or, or you know, the, all of those things uh, repulse me. I want to have my own experience. I think having, you know, for instance, somewhere like Istanbul, which I've gone to dozens of times and written two guidebooks and taken dozens and dozens of tours, private friends, groups, this, that, and the other. But after a bit, I'm so interested in it by now. I, I want to read more and more. And, but, you know, I, I don't think I did that much preparation before discovering it as a young man. And I've got a feeling that the ideal, well, the enthusiastic Elan reader isn't someone plotting their great sort of four-month trip across Central Asia. It's someone who's known or experienced the interest and the problems of being a foreigner abroad, of wanting to understand societies that you're not really ever included in. And that sort of odd coldness you get when you just know that you're never going to make it in this society as a local, however long you spend there. You're just, you're always going to be an outsider. And I think that that sort of emotional reaction to the world, the, the challenge, the interest, but also the, you know, the exclusion as well, sort of fortifies an Elan reader into being really interested in, in journeying um, into, you know, in the company of uh, Monica Connell spending, you know, three years 
in a remote Nepalese village and getting to know as well as any outsider can the nature of sort of the, the female life in in that community. But I, th I think uh, I think a lot of our readers have 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 had some of that experience, uh, and and it gives them the the, the taste for that sort of close focus yeah that, that makes sense to me as well like you you go to a place that you you have an unexpected experience or you find unexpectedly interesting and you've now that you've scratched the surface you want to dig deeper but I, I think also um i know for me when i look through your catalog i i see all these blank spaces on the map i i come across a book about a place i think jesus i know nothing about this place and uh, i'm immediately curious to see find out a bit about a bit uh, a bit of what it's like and i also consult um like I write magazine features quite often for, and when I started this maybe 15 years ago, it was much easier to find, to, to plan a trip online in the sense that I could find information about places that, that was interesting to write about or some little hidden corners of places just by, you know, combining search terms in a certain way or getting very creative with research and digging down to page 10 or 12 of, of the Google search results. But now so much is dominated by commercialism and you know Instagram and um, TripAdvisor reviews that I find it, it's extremely hard to find anything that everybody else isn't already going to see. Like the superficial floats to the surface like a scum almost. To not not to be too um, elitist or anything, but but I find uh, going back to some of these older books, uh, they reveal the so the sort of the cultural continuities of a place. Like those aspects of character, it's it's like those aspects of character that you carry from childhood to old age. Those elements that just don't change, and I find that that's be, being alerted to those kind of um, cultural continuities and then interesting corners of a country that you might find in, in these sorts of books uh, makes me want to go and see what they look like now. Like it, what's what's still the same? What's changed? You know, I'm I'm totally with you there, and I'm, I'm just as you were talking, I was just thinking of something that catches that. And that's sort of um, a funny book written by John Freely, who wrote a great guidebook, very detailed, which then became a blue guide to Istanbul. And it's Istanbul sketches. And he doesn't, it won't help you plan, thank God, you know, any trip and spoil an intimate community. But it's chance encounters and the, the mood of the city that makes you want to have your own. And that sort of, it's it's timeless. And also it's playing that very careful land of, or not ruining, you know, <laughs> not not making it a sort of has to get to um, sort of Machu Picchu sort of horror. <laughs> um, I've you know spent a lot of time traveling through France, which I adore. Normally on the way to a North African country, and you need to understand France properly to understand half of what's happening in North Africa. And we've realised that any site in France with a five or four star sort of Michelin rating is totally sort of fucked over by international tourism. And, um, but every village in France has got its own excitement and energy and you just do your own wondering. And I'm an old um, student friend who we used to share a flat with and worked as a magazine book editor. Um, we, we've, we're doing our own version of a pilgrimage walk, making certain that we don't follow nobody else's walk walking very slowly from Wells Cathedral to Canterbury. And both of us are monument nerds. We can't pass a bump or a village church we're going in inside. And on the process of that, we, you know, um, our last walk ended up in um, the ruins of a medieval Archbishop of Canterbury's palace that none of us have heard about. Um, 
on the edge of a village in Kent. And it was just a marvellous moment. You did feel, um, we felt like explorers. And it was just so sweet. This, instead of being turned into a historical monument with car parks and, and things, it was just uh, lived in, almost like um, village housing, with someone writing a bottle on a corner and grilling something else. And you just had to pinch yourself that even in overexploited um, England, there's still magic waiting around the corner. Um, once you set off, yeah, that, that's the it, that over commercialization can be overcome, right? Like the the proliferation of something like the Lonely Planet seems to have done this. It starts starts off as an independent guidebook for for cheap travelers, and then uh, by the time I started traveling, you know, in my late twenties, people are carrying this thing around and referring to it as the Bible, and. You, you guarantee whatever places they highlight in the book, it's just going to be overrun with people coming to see the same things. But I found it by using using the guidebook in reverse quite often, you know, looking at the maps and comparing it to the places they talked up and go to go to those other areas that they don't seem to be talking about. You could still get in touch with sort of that's um, those those types of discoveries that, you, that you're able to make on your own, you know, the stuff that nobody else has found yet or probably nobody's interested if they if they showed up at these places it ends up being very special to you because you met somebody there had a coffee with somebody interesting or but uh, they they become sort of the the landmarks in your own personal guidebook so to speak yeah absolutely and also there's you know um a friend who um knows turkey very well just said you know even the most exploited classical site like ephesus turn up at four in the afternoon and everybody's carried back to their hotel for tea. And you, and you can feel it, no, obviously not an explorer because you're buying ticket and, and um, uh, you know, saluting the custodian, but you can have it to yourself. And this friend who's lived all her life in Rhodes, knows it very, very well, always goes there in November when the direct flights are over. And she said, it's just like going back to her particular town, which is exploited disco, bum, 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 throughout the summer. November, it's back to one shop, one restaurant, and um, you know you can you you can you can adapt by just going even slightly out of season or just at four in the afternoon, and, and the world is not even the most brittle places can can you can rediscover their their enchantment. I had that experience in Petra. We uh, I, I was with a photographer for like, for a magazine story, and we um, we hiked up to the high place of sacrifice, you know, overlooking overlooking the ruins and just sat there and waited until everybody disappeared. And th there were just us and, and a couple guys with camels. By the time we got back down, we sat there after darkness and you know, walked out of the seek with, uh, yeah, after darkness fell, it was an incredible experience. But it's night and day to, to what it was just two hours before. It just still had some of that magic there, despite um, how over-photographed and how, how well-visited a place like that is. Absolutely. I'm, I did the same thing. And that slight sort of frisson of you leaving a little bit too late and suddenly it's, the landscape is empty and a tiny sort of shiver of threat as, as the, you know, the populated world diminishes. I'm very fortunate in my parents always encouraged us to go on night walks. And so the things that would be very normal and boring at three o'clock in the afternoon get transmuted with different scents and sounds if you go out at night. And it still is one of those things you can transmute the most boring suburb into a place of mystery where foxes cross over and the moon has power. Um, I don't, yeah, I, I don't want anybody telling me that the world has been discovered or explored already. I know by just doing something a little bit different, you can turn even your immediate parish neighborhood into a place of enchantment if you've got the wit and the... Um, yeah, the eyes to see it, yeah.
Yeah. And, and to, to come back also to the, um, to this idea of, of uh, old books, old books telling you something about, or, or, or revealing the present. Another one that came to mind while we were talking earlier was um, Warriors, Warriors by Hanley. That's um, yeah. an incredible story. It was it's, it took place during the Second World War, wasn't it? That's when he spent time in Somalia. Absolutely, and you know, as you know, records the people who'd been there before, and the number of people who couldn't cope with it, and who you know, took their life, and a very very tough environment when Somalia was quite well organized in, in terms of being ruled by distant imperial powers. But it, I think that book also prepares you for the excitement. Instead of thinking that Somalia is a failed state, you think, God, I'm, I'm beginning to understand just how, how tough this community is. And it's reverted to what it is. It's, it's taking things around. It's that, that states are imposed and we are all you know, waiting to naturally revert to our sort of anarchic tribalism of community life without... Um, being observed and taxed. Um, there's um, he's not a, an Elan character, but um, one of my joys of of the COVID lockdown is uh, listening to my daughters and coming across James Scott, um, Two Chairs for Anarchism, which is again turning turning the whole world's history upside down. And just thinking, you know, the world dark age is actually freedom and. Um, the pharaonic ages that collapse into anarchy means that people are no longer being extorted and told to build um, mad tombs for tyrants and being taxed to extinction. And, you know, they've got money to feed their own children. So there's so much that we need to constantly sort of bear in mind and, and contextualize. Um, yeah, the ending of one world is the opening up of somebody else's, I guess. Yeah. And, um, and one of the things that really struck me about warriors as well, when I read it, um, when I, I was a university student when the when the last Somali crisis was on, when the Americans were there and all this, and there were a lot of Somali refugees in uh, in Ottawa, and tribal fights were breaking out all the time from from between members of these clans were warring back who were warring back home. And I remember, I remember at the time thinking like, why the hell are these guys bringing the same problems that they just fled from in in to the place they just escaped to? Like, why would I, I didn't understand any of it until I read Warriors, and then it totally made sense to me. This, this is this, this um, fierce warrior culture. It's just reverting to to type, I guess. It didn't matter where they were. These 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 fundamental fundamental elements of their culture were were there. And isn't that fabulous discovery? Realizing that you know, beneath, you know, this sort of late twentieth, twenty first century sad-looking refugee in his drab clothings in, in Ottawa displaced. Actually, the real engaging PowerPoints of his culture are still intact there. I was rereading uh, My Traitor's Heart, a book I'd love to have on the Elan list, sadly never will be able to, but it, it reminds you again of these Zulus not fighting each other's tribes, fighting within each other's clans. Uh, wars would be ignited in... Uh, the um, slave-like barracks of, of the mine workers. But, you know, you, you don't know any of this until you properly um, take the hand of someone who can understand their culture and, you know, suddenly it gets incredibly exciting. And this, this sort of grim-looking um, oppressed people becomes something completely different, sort of passionate, um, urgent, vital, energetic sense of loyalty to their own self. Um, 
and that, that's you know that's one of you know without sounding like some demented orientalist always obsessed by tribes you know it's wonderful to actually dig down so that you can really share some of the motivating sort of forces it reveals something about our own civilization as well how thin the veneer is of of what we think of as civilization our manners and all these things and and how how deeply tribal our own societies are as well i think it was in a 2005 piece for for slightly foxed you wrote that um Travel writing is always at its best when it is an individual's passionate response to a society. It seldom ever aspires to a balanced point of view. I think at the time you were writing about the death of Thesiger and and Norman Lewis, but this um, the the examples that you've that you've just given speak uh, speak to that as well. I think like it, it's not it's that journalistic sort of neutrality that that's bland kind of neutrality isn't there, but. It, I don't think if, if it was there, you could understand these places as deeply. Thank you for doing that. That sounds rather good. And I, <laughs> I'm glad I wrote it. I feel that even more passionately now and, you know, and, and feel excited about the role of this determinedly quirky, slightly, you know, uncommercial list um, with, with this embedded zeal to wade past the sort of scum of, international travel related you know because as you and i know i've done a lot of it over the years travel journalism is a deeply corrupt and influenced structure we get free flights we get upgrades we get um we get treated well but we are basically salesmen selling holidays on behalf of travel agents many of whom are close personal friends of mine and i've you know i'm i'm, I'm part of that world and, and you know deeply died by it but it is, you know, it's 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 an industry well organised, and um, these a good book, <laughs> I'm afraid, can break through this really quite well constructed carapace of what you're going to be allowed to see and what you're going to where you're going to spend your money, and 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 get you somewhere that is you know so passionately and sort of alive, sensible, sexy, real, rather than the sort of you know constantly look at that sort of bored, jaded international tourists who've just been shown things after another with no relationship, no sort of energy to it. And um, we are we are on a sort of mission to to return to, to something vital and true. If I could ask you about a couple more of those periods that you cover, I think in that same slightly foxed um, interview, you, you said that uh, the post-war period was one of the most productive uh, eras for British travel writing. So why, why do you think that was? That's a period that I quite enjoy reading about as well. Yeah, I, I, it is very interesting. Partly because we finally got good, is we had socialism. You know, you had um, Winston Churchill's much overlooked deputy prime minister delivering everything that the Second World War was about, and this time getting it right. The First World War, all that sacrifice ended up in in a chaos and confusion and uh, and a betrayal. But to a certain extent, Britain became good after the Second World War. We tried to have an ethical policy. You know, the, the empire was slowly and I think by and large uh, dismantled as peacefully as it could as it could be contrived. And there was a mission and a sort of and a sense of sort of renewed humanism and purpose um, um, behind Britain. And I think we were no longer empire making. We were, we were unstitching it and trying to get it, trying to get at some truths. And um, Norman Lewis is classic one of that. But Wilfred, in his way, although he was such a sort of arch, sort of Etonian imperialist, his father was, you know, consul in Addis Ababa. As we know, his 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 love was for the the tribal communities that 
didn't want anything to do with uh, the superpowers of the 20th century. And he was, you know, in many ways, a deeply anarchic character. And, and so you, you, you get some, some really, you get some, some, a very rich mixture. And it's also very good for, you know, American writers. When you think of Paul Bowles. Yes, yeah. I mean, they, they, these are not Orientalists plotting the destruction of Morocco and making it, you know, a sort of subservient ally of NATO. These are quirky, anarchic characters, off on their own, often driven by their own sensual needs or, you know, the desire to escape corporate America. But they are fabulous. And, um, you know, Paul Bowles is a great example of someone who didn't immerse himself in classical Arabic, learnt Maghrebi Arabic of the dialect of the... Western Riff helped young Moroccan writers translate, made oral recordings of musicians and storytellers. This is, you know, this is a, an amazingly unstitched sort of working anthropologist who dug himself and ended up dying. You know, as, as um, you know, Moritz Thompson, we are, the world is full of strong Americans, you know, dominating and designing and um, involving the world. But the comparatively few who get so embedded in the culture, they're prepared to end up, you know, happily um, plotting their graves in Morocco or Ecuador. Um, and so these, you know, deservedly are our heroes. Yeah, this is a true example of anthropology light, as you've, as you've often termed it. That, that deep uh, engagement with the culture that doesn't, I mean, that, that's, it overcomes what's inaccessible about anthropology. That was, that was my, um, that was what I read at school. And, uh, all that that obsession with kinship charts and consanguinity and all this—I don't know if anybody understood what any of that meant. Oh, famously tortured, sort of bad writing, sort of almost like some farcical extreme version. You think, God, you know, is this ever designed to be to be read? Uh, certainly not for pleasure. But it's interesting though that you found a you found um, a couple of actual anthropologists who can write accessible, funny books like Nigel Barley's uh, trilogy, Innocent Anthropologist trilogy. They were brilliant. Yes, no, I mean, he, but he was very nearly sacked for writing well. I can imagine. And he was, he's, you know, he's an edgy, very funny character. And he's sort of, um, he survived really by the skin of his teeth, that book. It was really, really, virtually got him expelled from the academy. But now, of course, you know, he's delighted to find it's almost like a sort of set text. Um, and, you know, more than any other science realized it, it, it was you know a, a child of colonial exploitation it was it was a science looking at societies in order to govern them um at best to understand them but normally to govern them and sometimes manipulate the rivalries the better for foreign mining companies or imperial regimes to to structure their power and so modern anthropology is is twisting itself in in delightful sort of dances of of trying to negate these great heroes who set it up and see see where they're going now and for what purposes i like that he also he burst apart the pomposity of field work you know the um and i think it was i got a quote here it was in his second uh, the second book a plague of caterpillars where he talked about yes. how um uh in anthropology enjoyment is often used as, a, as an approximate yardstick of understanding so like if you if you don't like something that you've encountered among a people, it's ethnocentrism. But these people typically disapprove of everything in their own culture. <laughs> so, <laughs> that and um, that and the idea that the curious idea that uh, everything miserable about a place is is somehow uh, more worthwhile, you know. So 
the the amounts of uh, he says uh, there's a tradition in anthropology that the amount of physical suffering of the researcher is a measure of the value of his data. And then, so he's been he's been fed all this crap at school, and then he actually goes to this place. He goes to Cameroon, and and just <laughs> finds out it's all just a great big lie. I thought that's brilliant how he caricatures that. He's also you know trying his best to understand these cultures while re- realizing the the marvelous sort of fraudulence of the whole sort of um, schema. What I liked about the third one too was it was how uh, at the end of the book he brings these these guys from Indonesia back to London to to put on ex- an yeah. exhibit and we we get to see you know the lens flipped around. I, I remember the scene in they went for a walk and they came back and they said it's full of madmen the park, but there was people walking around with dogs on the end of pieces of string. You know like what the hell is going on here? No, he's brilliant. I love the conclusion of that book. Um, you know, and e- examining all the all the failures of British society um, through the the eyes of these skilled craftsmen making, isn't it a, a grain storage hut in the British Museum? And, and that's where um, Nigel ended up actually working at the museum, uh, collecting um, contemporary African ceramics instead of sort of history stuff. And had a very happy time. And um, he, whenever he comes to the office, tells me another outlandish but true story <laughs> about the, the directors of the British Museum and their hobbies and their hauntings and their ghosts. I mean, he is an extraordinary character, highly productive, still writing, ah, still busy. That's good to hear. Um, this is something I hope we'll see more of, this uh, this kind of flipping of the lens with uh, people from other cultures then coming to to travel within our culture and, and, and writing about what they've seen and encountered. He does it so beautifully in that book because it is accidental, because he, he's determined to make, to, you know, to you know, these, these, it's not a disposable culture, but he, he wants to, you know, not buy it, but but sort of build it and demonstrate their tremendous skills as craftsmen. Um, in, in, um, so that was the project, and it accidentally allowed him to, you know, to do that. But your, your, your memory of, you know, the Somali clans bringing their wars to Ottawa, you know, I had a similar experience rather naively um, working as a volunteer of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and working for the Afghanistan Support Committee and a member groups of, of Afghans coming back and um, showing tremendous lack of interest in British society, which is very refreshing, um, and going straight for a mosque um, used by Afghans and a restaurant. And you could see in, in a delightful way, you know, just what we were talking about earlier, you, 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 need, to, you need to have the frame of, of where you feel safe and what you know before you can begin to explore. And... Um, the place they revered much more than Westminster or Harrods or Buckingham Palace was um, BBC World Service. And that was always, if asked for a walk in London, they said, no, we'd, we'd really like to hear that. We've always listened to the passionate service. We'd love to see where that was coming from. And that was a rather wonderful moment of seeing London entirely through their eyes, getting rid of 99% of it and just concentrating on the sort of gateways that had relevance to um, a young Afghan. Do, do you know of any books that's that do this sort of thing, like that are that are written from somebody not from a Western culture coming and traveling, traveling in the West? Yes, we we've been looking at them, and nothing is really. You know, there's been some good work, um, some early translations of of early Moroccan um, embassies to France and to London, and um, they've been published mostly in academic lists with lots of sort of you know textual scholarship. Nothing that really yet has sort of grabbed us as a self-sustaining narrative. 
many of these people were writing reports. Um, obviously, it was their job to write reports on England for you know their court, who were always more interested in engineering and cannon foundries than um, democracy and, and freedom of speech. But yeah, it, it would be a good idea. We we haven't we haven't yet found something that. We don't want to patronize in any way. It's got to be as good as everything else. I, I've recently picked up a book called um, An African in Greenland, but I, I haven't read it yet, so I can't say. I think that's still in print, though. Mm. About a guy who became just obsessed with, with Greenland. I think he walked there. He walked to Europe and then worked in, to earn enough money and then went to Greenland and wrote this book about what he saw. But I'll, uh, well, tell us. Yeah, I'll let you know if that's uh, how that turns I'll read that soon. The, the other, one other thing that, that struck me is um, as we we were talking about the qualities that make a great writer on plays, like you said, um, to, not to dredge up your past too much here, but you in an issue of Renegade, uh, I think 2014, you you mentioned that many of the greats um, 20th century travel writers were autodidacts. So people like Chatwin, Patty Lee Farmer, um, Colin Thubron. So what what do you think? What do you think this gave them that a more highly educated writer like uh, like a Robert Byron might miss? It's it's very interesting that because they um, they're driven. I mean, Derrida's another one who didn't, for the reasons of looking after her mother, didn't go to university, and certainly um, university can can sort of box you into received perceptions of what you need to do and prepares you for a wonderful life as a journalist or a civil servant, um, writing ever ever tighter digests of of, of knowledge for a group of well educated people, and perhaps not going to university means that the world is is your audience. And I think there's something about university that condenses all the clever people from their schools and classrooms in your nation together. And you you have a, a perception of the educated, I don't want to call them elite, but this minority who end up running everything as lawyers, accountants, MPs, this, what, the other. And a travel writer who hasn't touched or been tainted by that um, very sort of powerful, and in my case, delightful experience, um, has got this sort of uh, still talking, still talking to the inhabitants of the bus, still chatting to people in the tube, still sort of engaged, hasn't become a sort of slightly, you know, inevitably tainted by some sort of intellectual snobbery. And also that questing, you know, they want to, they want to find things out in conversation. They don't want to, um, uh, it, it, once you start becoming an academic and even on the sort of humble little sort of undergraduate ends up trusting the, the text and the professor in his chair more than anybody else. And you know, so you, you sort of deadening effect happens. I haven't, I haven't really worked it out, but I, I have noted, I mean, Colin Thurgood could have obviously, you know, quite a sort of posh background. I think his father was a general, went to Eton, but he certainly, um, wanted to get out there into life. And he didn't initially think of being a writer. He, he tried to make films, you know, which is a very sort of democratic, open, sort of every man sort of world. And it's uh, it's carried on sort of driving him. Paddy Lee Fermer, famously, his university was his various uh, elderly um, female lovers um, who, who sort of educated him on the pillow, as it were, or on the, on the dance floor. And, you know, quite rightly thought this is much more fun than getting bored in, in, the, in the back of the classroom. I guess it lends a certain freshness, right? Like you, you don't come at the world with this sort of preconceived lens of how things are supposed to be or slotted into these frameworks or, or lengthy timelines, the historical timelines, if you don't know anything about it in the first place. This seems to be a, 
and ability to reflect what's actually there rather than what you're, I find that also yeah. though, the, um, being the, being an autodidact, autodidact can also result in sort of, uh, some shoddy thinking in the sense that like Henry Miller was often guilty of this, a writer I quite like, he was incredibly inventive at his, at his best, but then at the same time, he would buy into just stuff that, you know, is absolute nonsense, you know, like yes. astrology or like, a, Oh, they have pyramids in Egypt and pyramids in the, uh, in the new world, they must've been the same people, you know, where anyone who's studied it, you know, even at a surface level knows that it's different technologies have produced these things. And so there's, you risk that bit of shoddy thinking, but at the same time, the freshness is, uh, is really magical, I think, at times. Yeah, no, I remember exactly that dialogue going on and deciding in the end that, <laughs> I'm not sure we'd have got the rights to it, but Henry Miller, was the thinking was too shoddy um, in the end, but so delightful, such energy. And that's, you know, it's, it's always a very delicate balance. And, and I suppose this autodidact thing is what it gives the right to the person is, is, is to make some really good questioners and really good listeners and, and gets that sort of oral live culture recorded, which is, which is an act of genius to, to, you know, direct your conversation. So it sort of so it works in that way. What was Martha Gellhorn's background? Martha Gellhorn, um, very uh, political, um, like a lot of writers, she came from St. Louis, right in that, you know, Midwest. And she had, I think for her mother and father had, cause they were real, Democratic activists. She had um, privileged access to the White House under the Roosevelts, and so she got to she got to know some amazing people. And then was part of that writer scheme going down to witness on behalf of the president, who was deliberately sidesetting his civil service and even his staff in the White House, to have thirty young writers recording direct testimony of what was happening in the South um, and the Southwest in terms of deprivation of the people. And so he, you know, it was a brilliant streak. And so she had this training and we reprinted The Trouble I've Seen, which were her four fictional essays, very, very deeply rooted in that experience of recording uh, the depression. Mm. But that was an amazing sort of start to life. And literally she she lodged, um, you know, in a spare bedroom in the White House. And um, there, was a, there was a moment in some party uh, where she had been shuffled forward and... Um, and Kennedy strode towards her and she thought, oh God, what's going to happen? And he just wanted to know about how the Roosevelts coped with privacy <laughs> and basically getting girlfriends for both um, uh, Eleanor and, and the president um, into the White House without any, anybody knowing. And Martha was able to tell her about the, um, the Roosevelts' close understanding with the garden staff and the back door and the doorman and trusting people um, really with your life in terms of your, your, your status. And it, but she was, you know, she was so funny, um, so earnest, su such a sort of motivating citizen, but always available to see the absurdity um, behind any, any creed or, um, or even, even a great hero. Yeah. I've never, I've never read that first book. I've just picked it up after reading, um, Travels with myself and another. I can't believe I it, it had taken me so long to get to this. But what a, what an incredible book! I mean, there's a, there's another fe a female travel writer who who's there's nothing masculine about what she's doing. I mean, I, I quite like uh, I, I enjoy the writing of Hemingway, but I mean, she she was a much tougher traveler. Tougher traveler. Um, she you know um, 
she was a blonde bombshell um, and she used her looks, but she said, you know, I, I must have been the worst lay in five continents. Um, only later, right at the end of her life, did she fall in love, I think, with, um, you know, um, a dentist on the edge of London who really gave her more under the sheets than all her famous sort of lovers and husbands. And she was, um, she was a, a personal friend of John Hatt, who set up Eland, and she selected in her old age um, some young journalists like John Simpson and Nicholas Shakespeare and John Hatt, and would made herself their sort of godmother, and didn't gather them together. It wasn't a salon; they used to have to report and drink whiskey with her in her flat in um, in Chelsea, and she would just you know overview what they were doing, encourage them, urge them on, and you know amazing. I mean, a f um, final act in her life as a writer, of then working hard to encourage these sort of hand-picked um, group that she sort of sort of presided over. And then when she, when her brain and her body started to break up, she made a magnificent sort of ending of taking pills, leaving a note to her cleaner saying, "Do not enter this room. Ring this number. It's the doctor. I've taken my life." And you know, everything was beautifully organised and. Um, that really a life on her terms, huh? Yeah, an extreme character. And one, you know, yet another brilliant American who found that she couldn't really be at home in the United States. Did, did you ever meet her? No, never did. But um, have met quite a lot of people who have. And um, John Hatt is incredibly fond of her. And I normally spend a couple of days walking with John Hatt and just hear very unstructured um, and... I'm sort of not quite a Boswell, but I'm 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 just ready to listen for about three days as I hear, um, like I said, living connection with these with these characters. Well, that's that's another one I wanted to ask you. Have you did you ever meet um, Ralph Bagnold? No, um, I, I didn't. Um, recently, went to the closest thing I suppose was his son had helped um, had discovered some old rotting film, and the Royal Graphical Society in London had had remade it, and we had a, a film screening in the RGS, and it was a one one of those wonderful London evenings where it brought together about a hundred people, all either, either desert travellers or knew about Ralph Bagnold or somehow drawn together to this silent movie, which on one level, because we we run a small travellers film club in London. Yeah, I was going to ask you if that if that's going to be back again now that the pandemic is kind of wrapping up as well. Yeah, we just used the, you know, as a friend kindly said, it's a bit like Dad's Army. <laughs> See, Rose and I, this enormous Elan Corporation, these two slightly hassled middle-aged sort of plump people putting out chairs and screening um, films. But we love it for the chance assembly of what you get. We did have one of our least attended films was um, an early Palestinian film shot with the help of the uh, the Syrian government. And we only had eight people, but those eight people knew so much about the film. So it ended up most wonderful sort of anarchic seminar about what's happening but this one wasn't but on one level they looked absurd characters in their sort of those sort of empire shorts and um khaki hats this was before um uh, the war so it was a sort of very very sort of uh young man sort of um 20s and 30s um image but it was a marvelous mm. scene of them coming to have tea with these local clan in Sahara, and you thought, God, it must be rather wonderful. Like, being English was very identifiable, just as this clan had their own headgear and hats and sat in a different way. 
these sort of odd English types all had these shorts. <laughs> it looked like a sort of tribal dress. You thought, you know, um, I'm sure my my children would strongly disapprove of their sort of imperial ambition, but they look rather sweetly identifiable and sort of, you know, um, very modest people just drinking, you know, their idea of feast was, you know, salt beef, cup of tea, um, and on a lucky day, and open um, a can of sardines. Uh, this Bagnold story is a, was one that inspired me quite a lot. I ended up going to um, to Weynats and and seeing some of the places that they that they discovered out there, and you know the Salima Oasis where they stopped to to water up, and before that last push across the sand sheets, and yeah, you know, some of the um, some of the rock art they saw at uh, at Weynats. I tracked I tracked down his memoir. Um, was it Sand, Wind, and War? Yes. I don't know how yeah. I got a copy. It was going for astronomical prices on, on eBay, but I found uh, I was able to find a cheaper copy. But one of my desert friends actually uh, liked his work so much that he he, he picked up the, the physics of blown sand, which which wasn't quite a successful read, I don't think. I don't think he ever got through that. On this screening, uh, Ralph's uh, son brought um, his dad's homemade compass and various bits of battered desert regalia. And Ryan, I mean, our footsteps must have often passed because I, um, after my father died, my mother wanted to go on an adventure. And so I would do an exploration of the Western Desert of Egypt every February, which brought three Jeeps. And so we we were also um, in the footsteps of, of you and Ralph Bagnold on those um, oases in the Western Desert, very much inspired by that book. And that sort of, that modesty. And I also took my older brother who, is a mining engineer in South America, and he's like a living version of Bagnold, um, you know, unashamed about his sort of passionate interest in the working the um, of internal combustion engine and survey equipment. And it was again the, the, the most the most sort of opulent treat you're going to give yourself is um, milky tea at sundown. Um, and you do feel in the footsteps mm. and sharing. You know, quite a lot with these heroes and the freedom still exists out there in some of those places you know like once you you've gone a certain distance from the nile you're just a, you're still you plunge right back into that you're away from everything yeah i mean but you're you're what i also like about it is that you're you're completely dependent on yourself you know and your preparation so anything can go wrong out there but but and nobody's going to come and help you but at the same time you know you you could do anything you want you have complete freedom to explore yeah, such a. What do you think the like? Will we be able to go back to these places anytime soon? This seems like such a mess at the moment. Well, I'm a bit older than Ryan. I'm now sixty-one, and I've spent my life exploring the Sahara from age seventeen. And you have to wait. There are moments now, for instance, you can go to Chad, where you couldn't have gone in my youth and middle age. You have, the Sahara. Thank God, it's never open. There's always problems and issues, either superpower politics or internal feuding. And so we just have to wait and the doors open somewhere and they close somewhere else. You know, the, you know, the iron curtain was closed from my childhood, but now, you know, um, Soviet, you know, old Soviet Central Asia is incredibly open and, and welcoming. Um, I don't think one can insist on, on seeing things. One just has to um, be lucky and, 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 you know, take the good fortune of when things are accessible. And I've, you know, in COVID, because I thought, Quite rightly, that Eland is a national, an international resource, and various 
um, old customers isolated in their cottages, whether on the Isle of Colonsay or um, in Alberta, Canada, really, really love getting their Elan books. So we have been open every day and 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 packing up and posting books around the world. So it felt sort of very, very valid, but also the delight in exploring London. And you know, we've, we've been walking on various old pilgrimage trails and old rivers out of London. And you you really can get your adventure and your stimulus from anywhere. And mm-hmm. um, the chance encounters, including walking in the in the Jewish quarter of North London accidentally during Purim, having got myself lost. And then that's yeah. one of the secrets I must share with you. I think travel writers by and large get lost a lot. And, and you know, instead of obediently following the map, all of my great adventures have been when I've actually got myself um, slightly bemused. You don't encounter anything interesting by being found. That's the thing. Yeah. So it's always lost moments. And and it was wonderful being in Purim with all the Orthodox Jewish community were out in their costumes, dressed young boys dressed as as um, royal guardsmen or lots of Princess Cleopatras, quite a few Bedouin Arabs, very, very amusing uh, encounter and full of charm. Oh, what's what's next for Elon? Can you give us any any hint of what's uh, what's in the pipeline? Yes, we know. As as I've said, um, Ronald Wright, um, a fellow Canadian, he's uh, a fantastic discovery, and he is up there with Norman Lewis and Dervler as a passionately and um, Martha Gellhorn as a passionately engaged political citizen who has used travel writing in, to expose the truth. And time among the mayor, Cutstone and Crossroads. Mm, I reviewed both of these on my blog. Yeah, excellent. Really good books. God, well, I'm glad you shared, shared that. But that was a moment of high drama. And, and these were very recently on the Penguin Classic list. And again, you think, God, lucky in Elan to get writers of that quality. And then we we managed to spot two of Charles Nichols, who's a fantastic literary detective, travel writer. Did he write the one about Rambo in Africa? Exactly. Brilliant. Because we've got that coming out literally. Oh, that's a great book. The yeah. Else, the first copies have just arrived and we're, and I'm wrapping them up shortly to send out review copies. And he's updated that. There's another Rambo, two other Rambo photographs that have since emerged. There's a whole sort of Rambo industry out there. And he's absolutely at the top of his tree. He's both a traveller, an academic, um, and also very amused. Um, he's, he's got lots of different experiences that make his books um, really quite exceptional, and so we we've got two of those coming out. Borderlines, which is you know, um, very sort of gung ho young man's uh, physical journey to Thailand and Burma, and somebody else a much more reflective look at, at what Rambo was up to, losing himself. And for everybody who's writing brilliantly, there are people who are just wanting to live. And as we know, Rambo had r- written brilliantly and just wanted a life of adventure without any sort of record. So it's a very sort of wonderful sleuthy book. And then I mentioned earlier in the interview, because there's so much in my head, these two really fantastic early classics by chance by women of the Turkish embassy letters, 18th century, Mary Wirtz-Montague, writing with affection to people like Alexander Pope, to some of her ex-boyfriends, letters of charm and enchantment and discovery about Turkey. And Lucy Duff Gordon, letters from Egypt, where she's just preserving a life about to be extinguished by TB living in the dryness of the Western desert on the Nile. And just the last time a British person could be loved by an Egyptian Arab because the shadows of our protectorate are already being assembled. And so it gives it, a, for me, a special 
energy of 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 a love affair of innocence because i don't think perhaps being canadian in, in egypt is okay but being britain you feel god we There's are a bit more baggage uh... wading through you know some some bad deeds um there in every sort of direction the elan list is particularly strong on morocco and turkey what is it about those places that has inspired so much great writing you're talking to one of Britain's leading Turkophiles and Moroccophiles is basically I'm passionate about both those countries. And if I knew other countries just as well, I would create thick as lists as, as those we've got. But they're places of mystery. They've got mountains. They've got culture. They are self-sufficient. They are ancient, intact Islamic societies that were never totally overwhelmed by Europeanization. So they've they've got that sort of mystique and, you know, the Ottoman Empire is, is tangibly part of Turkish culture, and um, Morocco still got its Islamic dynasty, descended from the Prophet Muhammad, who the same vizier who introduced the first French governor general um, was still alive, tottering on his staff when he he uh, bade farewell to the last one. You know, it's 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 an intact society in the same way like the the Yemen. I think the Yemen has produced also a great sort of libraries of people digging and trying to understand this incredibly contact uh, and rich society that's still intact with its problems like Somalia as well. Um, I, I was surprised at just how recently this this um, sort of turbulent society existed in Morocco. Like I just I just went there for the first time a couple of years ago and I read uh, Walter Harris's book, Morocco That Was. <laughs> it's really not that long ago. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, just the traces are everywhere. It's really, it's not what I expected. I expected to kind of a place overrun with tourism, and it's not what I found at all. No, it's a marvelous country. And, and also, like all countries, you know, it's not Morocco, you end up with these five very distinct regions. I mean, there are three indigenous languages in Morocco. Fourth, if you include, you know, the, the far south of the, the Tuareg, and there are so many language, cultures, tribal identities. A great friend of mine who's a, a Moroccan who runs a academic uh journal uh, were telling me more and more about his childhood in the Sahara and and absolutely on his heart saying there's no one in Morocco who doesn't know from which tribe they are and every year the representative of the tribe will make a personal oath of loyalty to the ruling monarch of Morocco so you've got you know other extraordinary passageways plus Islamism plus language linguistic you know and a, and a backstory of these Almoravid, Almohad, Marinid, Sardian, which is so exciting to my mind and sensibility. Uh, you know, tourism is just a little skim of suntan oil on the beach, you know, and, and is, fortunately, as you've seen, uh, has not interrupted uh, this extraordinary rich culture. No, it's, it's, it's uh, heartening to know that these places still exist, you know, despite the, des despite the creeping tentacles of modernity. No, no, and, and there is the first British, well, sorry, um, English language book festival being developed as we speak in Marrakesh in November, um, a group of Moroccans and British expatriates and uh, American teachers. And we've got um, a Moroccan female poet from Meknes. It's looking very exciting and really nice sense of dialogue um, um, through the medium of English. I mean, Morocco is basically a was a francophone sort of cultured zone with bits of spanish language in the north and far south um that's an excellent an excellent reason to travel yeah no i think 
I'm very excited by that. Um, so you know, Marrakesh has become a bit like a sort of adopted element of the of the um, southern coast of France with its sort of golf courses and its sort of apartments and beautifully tended gardens. And it can look a bit a bit trashy, but if you concentrate on um, the spoken word and the markets and the Gemal Fana, you know, it's it's very much a totally intact society. That's still a magical place. Um, in closing, I, I just want to um, I wanted to mention uh, that that listeners can buy the entire Eland Library in one shot. Those um, lucky enough to live in the UK, what was the what's the what was the price for that? It's it's just gone up. It's incredibly expensive, one thousand seven hundred. But I have to say that everybody who's done it um, has really enjoyed owning the whole list. And we normally hand deliver them because I sometimes trust the post office. I'm getting quite good at wrapping up book parcels. This 18 months of COVID has turned me into a very skillful website book packager. You're going to need a donkey or a camel or something to deliver that. That's quite, that's quite a library. It's it's five boxes. And we had such an enchanting email from the um, – it's a hardworking vet in Cumbria in the, in the – the mountain, the Highland District, um, the border of Scotland and England, and she ordered the whole library. And I, I felt like I was packing up the best thing about me as I wrapped up all of these books. And it's such a pleasure. And I see. I think I saw some on on your Instagram feed. There was a, a guy in Malaysia who donated the the library to to his public library. Yes. No, that was very sweet. He um, ended up delivering um, to an address in in Putney, and there was. Um, his secretary, so forwarding things. I had no idea that actually he was, uh, he bought, he'd fell in love with them with the display in Waterstones where they've got a lovely table full of Eland and thought I'm going to do the same thing. And another eccentric character is, um, is a German who had a big motorcycle um, in post-war Britain and went around helping build oil refineries for England and now breeds Arab horses in Barbaria. And he's a great Eland um, supporter. And I was rather sad when he bought the whole library because I thought, you know, I'm not going to, be wrapping up um, parcels to, to Heinrich again. But fortunately, he keeps giving copies to friends and showing them off in his library. So I have these <laughs> these orders coming in twice a year now. Um, so, you know, it's a, a marvellous way to conclude this talk is that it really has become a cooperative of passionate readers and it is not really a business, although my wife and I own 90% and there are no other shareholders apart from the founder, John Hatt, um, we we operate, but it it is um, it's got the spirit of a sort of of a mad collective. Uh, I hope it continues that way. Ah, it's, it's it's a really magical. It's a fantastic list. I think the you're doing a tremendous service by keeping these these great books alive. Yeah, it's, it's inspiring to know that you're that you're out there doing this work. And, and thank you, uh, thank you very much for your time. It's been uh, it's been an absolute pleasure as always to talk with you. And at the perfect way, I think, to kick off this new podcast. Well, let's let's um, open a, a bottle of wine um, when you're next passing through from Berlin to London. Yes, that sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Barnaby. A pleasure as always. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernon.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.